Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Lonnie Liston-Smith. Lonnie is a jazz legend. He's a pianist and keyboard player. He's worked with Pharoah Sanders, Miles Davis, Marvin Gaye. He's a master of the Fender Rhodes. That's the electric piano that helped define a movement in music that eventually became known as cosmic jazz. You can hear exactly what I mean in one of his most iconic tracks, Summer Nights. Cosmic jazz is, as they say, having a moment. A moment that has lasted, I don't know, maybe 10 years now? You can hear it in the jazz vanguard being led by artists like Kamasi Washington and Terrace Martin. You can hear it in the beats of hip-hop producers like The Alchemist and Flying Lotus. You can hear it sampled on tracks from Benny the Butcher and Kendrick Lamar. It's been 25 years since Lonnie Listensmith released his last solo record. He's toured... He's seen the occasional royalty check come through for compilations or yet another sample. But this year, for the first time in a quarter century, Lonnie dropped a new record. Jazz is Dead 17 is part of a series of albums released by musicians who are collaborating with the producers Adrian Young and Ali Shaheed Muhammad. It's a vibrant record, full of energy, still pushing boundaries. Lonnie Liston-Smith is 82 and still in top form. I want to play you a little bit of this so you can hear it. This is Cosmic Changes, which features vocals from Lauren Oden. Smith, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. All right, Jesse. It's great to be here. And congratulations on this great record. I really was enjoying it. Wow, okay. It's a very interesting story. <laughs> yeah, so you hadn't recorded a record under your own name in a long time. How did you end up doing this one? Uh, Jesse, like I said, this is a really interesting story because, you know, I'm, and I'm sitting at home over here on the East Coast. So I get a call from uh, Drew. I think he's uh, one of the uh, owners of uh, Jazz is Dead Records. He said, and uh, he said, we'd like to record you. So I said, well, I said, Jazz is Dead. And then he said, we just recorded um, Gary Botts, uh, Gene Kahn, Roy Ayers. I said, uh, okay. And in a way, I just got back from London. I said, wow, I really don't want to come to California way over there right now. He said, no, we're going to record you. And plus, we're going to do uh, a concert. 
So you get paid for the recording, you do a concert. And then, you know, we take, you know, take good care of you when you come to, to, uh, to California. So, okay, so I, I go, and, but I had no idea how they did things. And, and I had never, then when I got there, he introduced me to Adrian and Ali. And, and they have a 70s studio. I mean, all 70s equipment. I mean, the keyboards, everything. And every, I guess, I think everything is analog. And uh, so, and, and now in the studio, it was just myself, bass, and drums. And they had these little motifs and, and oh, ideas. And they said, okay, we want, you know, you want you to develop it and just, you know, just play, do you, you know, be yourself. And when you leave, we will put everything together. I said, uh-oh, now this is really different. And uh, so that's what happened. And then when the final outcome was, and they are hearing vocals and all kinds of little percussion and, and different sounds. And uh, so I'm just kind of playing it by ear. Seems like all the fans, they love it. So that's, that's what counts. Lonnie, if someone else had called you, <laughs> Was the reason was the reason that you weren't recording that you were retired from recording, or was it because nobody had called lately? Oh no, that that wasn't a problem because I mean it was getting all kinds of calls from from, from London and everywhere. Uh, so why this one? Um, that's an interesting question. It just I guess it just fit, and and I was in America, and it was just before that pandemic hit. So. Uh, because after that hit, I just really kind of canceled everything. But that's an interesting question. I don't know. It's just from talking to Drew, and he said, you know, we're going to we, we record you, and then we're going to do a concert, and we're going to make sure you everything is, you know, first-class ticket, nice hotel, all that. And so it's sometimes you just kind of play everything by ear or just to see, you know, what would happen. It's a lot of trust. Ah, that's wow. That's you. You asking some great questions, right? Because uh, it's it's hard to trust in the music industry. Because you know, because I kept turning them down in the beginning because, like that word, you know, because the music, the art of music is fantastic, but the business of music, that is that is very tricky. So I guess I it was it was just I guess it was just supposed to happen. So you got in there. What did they tell you to do? What did they have already, and what did they need from you? That's the interesting question. Uh, when we when we got to the studio, and, and, he, and Drew introduced me to uh, Adrian and Arlie, and they just had little ideas, and uh, they said we want you to you know, you know just go ahead on and develop them, and uh, and just play. And that that's what happened. It, it sort of reminded me of when I when I did the first recording with Miles Davis. Uh I guess on the corner and it was three keyboard players, myself, Herbie Hancock, and I forget the other young man. And what Miles did, he just put everything together after after it was all finished. Him and Atil. They just they they made arrangements. So recording with H and M and Ali, and they said we'll we'll add to it when you, when you when it's all finished, and that's what happened. 
And then the vocals came on when I, when I finally heard the final result. And I'm getting great feedback. That's, you know, so that's, I wanted to see were the fans going to be able to relate to it from the way I used to, you know, go in the studio and record. I mean, I imagine if you had signed a record deal with, you know, the label that was calling you from Amsterdam or London or whatever, they'd have said, come to Amsterdam, come into our studio, we'll have a band there. Mm. You know, maybe it's people that you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, whoever is, whoever the talented people are locally, right? Mm-hmm. You'd sit down and they'd say, you know, an A&R person would say, hey, how about these 10 songs? Right. You'd say, sure, maybe you would have bring a couple. Right. And you'd just sit down and have a jazz session where everybody plays through all those songs. And this is a very different thing that you're describing. Jesse, this is this is really a different thing. And um, so, but you, you, you never know. Because um, I remember over 25 years ago, I, I got a call from EMI Records. And, you know, Guru Jasmataz. And sure. they 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 called and they said, okay, we'll fly you to New York, and we're doing, uh, I guess, jazz meets rap or rap meets jazz, and and we're gonna use a different jazz artist on on each cut. You know, Donald Byrd was on one cut, Roy Ayers on another cut, Branford Marcellus was on another song. Said we want you to do this song. So I went to New York and I just did it and didn't think anything of it. And 25 years later, people are calling for interviews. Somebody said classic. So I'm kind of looking at this situation. It's really different. But I'm getting all kinds of great feedback. So as um, like you said, it, it was a lot of trust. Much more to get into with Lonnie Liston-Smith. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Lonnie Liston-Smith. He's a jazz pianist and keyboard player who worked with Miles Davis and Pharoah Sanders, among many, 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 many others. He's also a solo musician who's recorded about a dozen of his own records, His latest, which is the first in 25 years, just came out. It's called Jazz is Dead 17. Let's get back into our conversation. Let's talk a little bit about your childhood. Your father was a touring musician. He was a harmony singer in a gospel group. Oh, yeah. There was a harmonizing four, and they they went all over the world. And uh, he had a very beautiful tenor voice played four-string guitar, and uh, then, of course, my two younger brothers, they inherited his beautiful tenor voice. You know, Donald, you heard him on all my records, expansions and everything. And then uh, the middle brother, Ray Smith, he started a group, the Job Mills, and they had a big hit record, A Little Bit of Soap, you know, Wash Away Your Tears. And that was my middle brother, Ray Smith, so... but. Only thing I can sing is the bass. I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't hear, inherit that beautiful tenor voice. So, uh, so I just sang through the piano. And then, you know, in high school, I went over to my friend's house one day, and his father was into jazz, and he was playing this beautiful record. I said, "What is that?" He said, "That's Charlie Parker." 
playing just friends. And I said, what is he doing? He said, he's doing, you know, jazz improvisation. And it just sounded so beautiful. I said, well, that's what I want to do. And then I just started listening to, like I said, you know, Art Taylor, Oscar Peterson, Earl Gardner, Charlie Parker, you know, all, all the great masters. And it just kept growing from there. Let me ask you about your dad when you were a kid. So you mentioned your dad played the guitar. There weren't a lot of guitars in harmony groups at the time. It was a relatively, it was consequential that he played mm. the guitar. And, you know, when you were a kid, gospel music was changing and your dad's music was kind of in between. Mm-hmm. Um like I said, he was playing the guitar. They were, they were a little, a little zippier than the stuff that came before, uh, which was pretty. They say flat-footed. Um, <laughs> it involves standing still and and singing really careful harmonies. Oh right. And serious songs, but he also wasn't singing the the kind of gospel music that I think people imagine when they imagine gospel music now, mm-hmm. which involves a lot of moving and clapping and jubilation. Oh yeah. Sort of medium. So did you think, did you think he was cool when you were a kid? Oh, you and my father? Oh my goodness. Dad, yeah. he was fantastic. Uh, Cause he loved all kinds of music. That was, that was the amazing thing about him. And uh, cause when they did, when they did the uh, Apollo theater, then after they finished, he would go to uh, up there. What was it? I think it was it Savoy or they had this famous drummer, and he was a five piece band. And he was, and my father would, would go and listen, and he would come back and uh, tell me all the stories. Uh, I mean, he 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 loved he loved great singers, uh, and we used to sit in the basement and listen to. And back then, oh man, way back then, it was like the radio. Was that, that's how you f- discovered music. And he was always encouraging. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, you couldn't ask for a, a better situation. I imagine he was out on the road for long stretches of time, though. He was probably driving and out for months. Oh, yeah. But, but, well, my father wasn't driving because, you know, we were all, it was amazing. Like, uh, I guess I, I never mentioned it, but uh, my father, my grandfather, and a couple of my uncles, it's amazing, all were born with you know, congenital cataracts, but, um, but they were always on the road. And, uh, you know, and I think they had this Chrysler car that was driving all over the road, and that's, that's a little bit different. You know, that's something, that's something I never wanted to do. Just be on the road all the time, like that, you know, in the cars and things like that. But they were constantly on the road doing that, and that was it. Do people come through your house when they were on tour? Oh, that, yeah, that that was another thing because you know, now the gospel groups they had they had gospel festivals in all the cities. So my father and them was at the they would have the gospel festival in Richmond, Virginia, at the Mars. That's what they call it, and uh, you know the big concert hall. And so all the group, gospel groups that come in, I met you know Sam Cook and the Soul Sisters, uh, 
the Dixie Hummingbirds, and then I just found out Chris Love's grandfather was singing with the Dixie Hummingbirds. I didn't know that, but I just, you know, I just met all of them. And uh, and then uh, Sister Rosetta Thaw, you know, because I heard her when I, when I was a little kid, because she, she moved to Richmond because she was crazy about harmonizing for her. I heard her play, and then she was playing guitar. I said, wow, that's she she's really playing different. But then when I and then years later when I was in London, all the rock groups called her the mother of rock and roll. I said, wow, okay. But I was around all these gospel artists all my life when I was a little kid, but I just took it for granted. Like I say, it, you know, it was all all music. Well, I want to hear a little bit of your dad's group, the Harmonizing Four. Oh, okay. Uh this is actually from the sixties. This is a live recording of We're Crossing Over. They sound pretty good. Oh, right. Oh, man, this. And they they had some. Very famous uh, bass singers also, and because I remember when I was doing a concert in Detroit back in the day, the bass singer from the Temptations came by and he said, "Oh man, I should listen to your father's group because they had these great bass singers also." And uh, you know, Jesse, like I said, it was I was just doing music twenty four seven, and that's that's all you know. That's all I was interested in. How old were you when your brother when your brother's record hit? Oh sure, I, I can't remember, but I, I'd already, you know, I was already out there, and uh, as soon as I finished high school, oh man, I just I got out of Richmond. I was heading uh, to New York, but luckily, I was, you know, and, and you know, I, I went to Morgan State. Uh, university in Baltimore, Maryland. So I'm, I'm glad I did. And so, because uh, that's when I met, you know, because Gary Bartz, you know, we started hanging out because he he was he lived right there in Baltimore. And but see, with my brothers, uh, the Jamel, I think they had had that song, uh, a little bit of soap, much later. And actually, uh, I became a member of the Royal Theater Band. Because at that time, they would do the Apollo Theater in New York for one week. Then they would do the Howard Theater in Washington, D.C. for another week. Then they'd come to Baltimore and do the Aurora Theater. And I think it was one theater in, in Chicago, maybe in Philly. And they would do these a week at a time. And so I played behind the John Mills once, uh, when they came through because I was, I was in the Royal Theater Band. I just looked it up. That record came out in 61 so you were about 21 years old oh okay great did you play the keys in the marching band oh <laughs> get, get out of here just pushing the piano <laughs> oh man that's that's a good one Bad back then okay so i want to get in the marching band and, and so the band leader said everybody wants to play trumpet and saxophone they said I need some tuba players. Nobody wants to play the tuba. I said, "Look, I want to be in the band, so I'm gonna play." I said, "I'll, I'll learn how to play the tuba." But Jesse, back then, those were real tubers. Those big, <laughs> heavy 
<laughs> metal instruments. I mean, they were elected once a day. But I, you know, I didn't care. I just wanted to uh, be in the marching band. So I was in the marching band at Armstrong High School and at Morgan, you know. And, and it was fun because, you know, you play for all the football games and, and, uh, and all the different marches they had. Oh, I remember when, and when I was in the band at, um, at Morgan, shoot, we played for one of the, uh, was it the Baltimore Coast, I think, then. Uh, played at one of their games. And, you know, it was, I mean, it was just all music. And you were dragging around a tuba the whole time? Hey, that's it. I mean, I, I wanted to be in the band, and uh, but it was a good experience. No, so, we're talking about we're talking. We're not ending this conversation. We're talking about tubas for a minute. <laughs> uh oh. Did you ever play the tuba professionally? Did you ever have occasion to bring out a tuba on a record? Oh no, no, oh no, no, no. Sure, I. I would have to learn all over again. Were you ever just at the Village Vanguard one night, and <laughs> there was a tuba lying there, and you said, "Oh, I could, I could toot a little something on this." <laughs> okay, all right, you, all right, you're pretty good. <laughs> no, but uh, but I tell you one thing, I wasn't aware of uh, how important the tuba really was, and I wasn't aware of the tuba. In New Orleans, and all those great tuba players because, you know, they didn't have bass. The tuba player was the bass player. And I wasn't aware of that when, when I was in, in school doing the, doing the tuba. So I don't know what would have might have happened. What was it like when you showed up in New York? Uh, when I showed up in New York, I, mean, I was just, just pure innocent excited and just ran down to you know birdland the, the original birdland it was still open and uh i mean i didn't know just just went there and it was started hanging out and um and listened to all you know all the artists and but one thing i remember i was just there and all of a sudden this complete stranger just walked up to me and said um and put a book in my hand. He said, you know, I, I think you're looking for this. I said, okay. And it was John Gilmore. You know, he, he played with Sun Ra. And, and the book was The Mysticism of Sound. And, and that, that started a whole new, you know, search, you know. Because I even wrote a song in Searching for Truth and, uh, and things like that. I interviewed one time the percussionist Ayrton Morera. And he told me about showing up in New York. And, of course, he had come from Brazil. Oh, boy. And what was amazing to me is, and I pressed him on this to make sure that he was telling the literal truth and not <laughs> giving me a, a broader interpretation of the truth. But he was like, yeah, when I came from Brazil, I brought my clothes and a suitcase full of... <laughs> percussion instruments right just one he's like i had one suitcase and it was full of percussion instruments and i just carried it around until someone let me play with them <laughs> <laughs> oh i mean yes i mean when you, when, back then i mean that was real new york you know but when you when you got to new york it for some reason all the pianists when they came to town 
we all ended up with with Betty Carter. You know, as for, I don't know, I don't know how she found all the new young pianists. So that was that was a great situation. You know, then you could because I started working with a lot of singers, and of course, you know, you started working with Betty Carter, and then Joe Williams, Dakota Staten, and then you know, actually, you know, your name is getting out there, and people are hearing you. But working with Betty Carter was really interesting because she approached music as as the same way a horn player would would uh, approach music. So, so playing with her was almost like you know she, she wanted to be like a horn horn player with her voice. So, and then eventually you start getting calls. You know, Rosson Roland Kirk call, and then later on Max Roach and. But when you first get there, that's, that's that was a different world. Did you see something that you were good at? Did you have a rep? Did you think there was something that you could do that other people couldn't do, or that you were particularly strong in? No, because I was I, I was just 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 playing, you know. Because you know the main thing. I mean, I, all the young artists, I tell tell the young artists same thing, you know. When I was working on Blakely, I met Monk, and Monk was saying, you know, you have to find your own sound. And um, so I wasn't, and back then, you know, we didn't have Berkeley School of Music and things like that. So uh, you had to develop your own sound, and, and and I was just developing the things that I heard inside of me, you know, and, and manifesting them through the piano. And, but I noticed when I, when when Farrell and I were together, the last record we did was uh, Thimby. You know, Farrell's record, Thimby. And I discovered Defender Rose Piano. And I, I think I really developed a sound, that, you know, on Defender Rose Piano that no one else developed. So um, that was, I, I can say that because when I was working with Miles, I saw Miles had all these pedals to uh, hooked up to his trumpet. And I said, well, I now wonder if I do the same thing and hook, hook all these pedals up to defend the rose. And it worked. Just came up with a whole, I guess what you call it, cosmic sound. And then I wrote Astro Traveling right in the studio the first time I touched defend the rose when we were in California doing Thimby. Well, let's hear the title track from Thimby, the Pharaoh Sanders album on which my guest, Lonnie Liston-Smith, plays keyboards. Such a beautiful record. Oh, great, great. Yeah, because that, uh, that, that's the record Astro Traveling was on. and Because uh, I noticed I went inside the piano to get that string effect in the beginning, so that's good. Tell me what you mean by that, for people who don't know about how pianos work, such as myself. Oh, we, you know, the grand piano, it's kind of fixed. Because uh, you know the, the the guitars, the bass players, the drummers, the uh, the vocalists, the horn players, they can 
slide notes and and uh, get different effects. But when you, when you play in the grand piano, it's 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 hard to do that. So that that's a lot. That's that's some of the things I try to do on the on the, on the grand piano is try to get the effect you know that other other people can do even with vocalists. Because you, if you notice, uh, in, in in Western music, we have uh, we have twelve notes, but there's more notes. You know, you gotta. You got the whole note, then you got a half note. But in other, when you when you start traveling, there's notes in between that. So you said you went inside the piano. Oh, when I went inside the piano, like uh, you know, you heard it in the very beginning, you just swipe across the uh, the string part of the, of the piano inside the uh, where the strings are. I thought it must be a harp or something when I was listening ah. to it. That's you. When you say go inside the piano, that's not pianist talk for some other special thing. That's literally physically. That's you right. playing the piano strings with your hand. Right. Oh yeah. That's that's it. I I, I do that a, a lot of times. You know, you can. If I was near the keyboard, I I could really show you more. But we're not near a keyboard. Uh. Oh yeah. Oh no. Uh. That's that's it. That must have been exciting then to get your hands on electric pianos where you could modulate their sound through means other than just that key and that hammer and those pedals that you could add electronic alterations or, you know. Oh, that's it. I mean, because even on a lot of the keyboards, there's a little knob that you can use to act or actually bend the note, so that that's a whole whole uh, whole another world. But like I said, without the way I try to approach the electric keyboards is a lot. And a lot of pianists approach the electric keyboards the same way you approach the grand piano. But that that's a different instrument, different color altogether. And uh, so when I first heard the Defender Rose in that studio that day and and I started messing with the knobs, the song just 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 came. The creator just gave me this beautiful song and Farrell and everyone ran over, said, Well what are you doing? I said, uh, I don't know. I'm just composing. And they said, Well, we gotta record it. That is really beautiful. And they said, What are you gonna call it? And at that time I was studying astral projection, you know, where you know you can leave your body and float all over the world, but that's easier said than done, though. <laughs> I said, "Well, sound like we're floating here all over the world. Let's call it astral traveling." And uh, so, but for a lot of keyboard players, you can't approach the, the electric keyboard the same way you approach the uh, grand piano. Well, let's hear the version of astral traveling from your first album, which was called Astral Traveling. Oh, okay. You listen to something yeah. like that, it's easy to see why they call spiritual jazz spiritual jazz. Oh, yeah, and, and 
I, I was still with Miles, and, and but we were off, and Bob Thiel calls and said, man, it's time for you to do your record. And because everyone is, you know, talking about you, you know, all over the world. I said, okay. And it, I just, you know, I had Bob Roy playing tablas. So, you know, he's from India. Then I had him too made playing playing uh percussion. And so that was it. You you're trying to get this universal sound. Cause you when you start traveling, you find out that music is the only universal language. Because you can play with musicians, you can't speak to each other verbally. But once the music starts, you know, everything is great. There's also there's a breadth to it. Um you know, it's expansive feeling when you hear it. I, c- I can only imagine what it's like to play. Oh, that's it. I mean, when you start playing and, you know, you just keep on expanding and uh, it's it's almost like you... Um, that's why I'm saying music really can heal people because you can just feel like you you just like you're going you you're in paradise or nirvana or for lack of you know, heaven or you know it's 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 fantastic because I remember uh, you know Miles said something one time and I think you know she said you know how are you gonna practice the unknown once you start playing you have to just just keep going, and and you you don't know what's coming, but I mean it's just it's just beautiful, you know when you when you can do that. It's also mesmeric. I mean, it is. Um, it doesn't usually have that, you know, dancing in the aisles quality of a revival, right? But it does have that same effect, which is that you are drawn into it in a way that makes you feel like you are leaving your body, right? That you are, that you enter a different space. Ah, that's, that's pretty good, Jesse. That's it. I mean, because it's, so what I did was you start doing research and you start studying, uh, other worldwide religions and, and philosophies. And so I just expanded on 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 on, on the beginning of, of you know the gospel and the blues and all that. Because all religions and all philosophies, I mean everybody's saying the same thing. They they want peace, harmony, love and and, and you know and so I, I when I did expansion, that's the first time I wrote lyrics and I was saying, uh, you know, well, why are we fighting and why is all the conflict worldwide when we all want the same thing? And so I was trying to manifest that through the music. And and then I did a record called Renaissance, and I put on the album cover, you'll see all the symbols that represent every religion in, in the entire world. Uh, but... When you look at what's going on today, you say, "Wow, you know, trying to bring peace, harmony, and and all this, you know, to the world is it's not as easy as as you think it is." Well, let's take a listen to expansions from 1975. Uh, my guest, Lonnie Listensman. Expand your mind. 
So your first album with your name on the cover came out, you know, 10, 12 years into your career as a professional musician. 1975, you're 15-ish years into your career as a professional musician, and you have a hit record (laughs) in a kind of music where (laughs) it had been a long time since there had been a bunch of hit records. You know, it was like, it was a new thing for there to be hit jazz records in the mid-70s. You know, obviously there were lots of hit jazz records up until the 50s or so, and still jazz, you know, uh, jazz vocal hit records a little while after that. But like, for real, I don't think, I can't imagine that when you were making Pharaoh Sanders albums, that you were like, man, in a few years, I'll, I'll crack the pop charts. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened was, it's, okay, when I did it, that's, that's the first time I wrote lyrics. And that's why I was, I was trying to, you know, expand on, you know, everything you, know, you I learned growing up and uh, try to make it a whole universal concept so so everyone could understand it. Because, you know, we're all one, but it's, like I said, easier said than done. And so what expansion was like, okay, on the bottom, we, I said, well, because, you know, we, we're all influenced by James Brown. I mean, you know, I mean, one, once once you hear James, I mean, that's all that funk he laid on you and uh, and rhythm. So I said, okay, we're going put to the, put the rhythm on the bottom and then... I might have meaningful lyrics. Expand your mind. It's, you know, because most of the lyrics were people crying, my baby done left me, and all that kind of stuff. I said, no, we have to, some very positive, uplifting lyrics. And then we're still going to be using the same jazz chords that we use in, uh, you know, straight ahead music, and we do, we're still going to do, do improvisation. And Jesse, it, when the record came out, the whole world said, well, that's that's what we've been, you know, that's what we want or that's what we've been waiting for. And uh, it just it just took off. We'll finish up with Lonnie Liston-Smith after a quick break. When we return, as I mentioned before, his tracks have been sampled so many times in hip-hop and electronic music. He'll talk about the songs that caught him by surprise. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is jazz keyboardist Lonnie Liston-Smith. His latest record, Jazz is Dead 17, is out now. So your records have been very extensively sampled, both the ones that, you know, are under your name and the ones that you played on. Is there a record that you heard that had a piece of you playing where it really caught you by surprise? where this, the way that it was used or the way that it was transformed or the way that it was contextualized caught you by surprise? Well, the thing that really caught me by surprise was, um, of course, now, they sample expansions. I understood that. But all of a sudden, they start sampling a garden of peace. And that really caught me by surprise. Because I got in a piece when I was in the studio, I, I told Bob, I said, Bob, I just want to do something, you know, something beautiful. And, you know, because 
record companies, you know, it, well, you got to have a hit record because that makes everyone's ha- everyone happy. And the record companies. So I said, I want to do something beautiful. So I, I played a gardener piece on the on the grand piano, acoustic piano. Then I overdubbed the uh, Fender Rose, you know, to add a lot of colors and things like that. But years later, everyone started sampling Gardner Peace. And, and the younger generation, I mean, they really love it. So I, I, I've talked to the younger kids, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 on, on up. I said, well, wh- what do y'all like about a Gardner Peace? They say it's, it's just so peaceful. And so I said, okay, well, that's what I was trying to do. And so, I, and I guess during this day and time, everyone is looking, looking for peace because the world's kind of going through a lot of changes right now. And that, that when this, all these samples of, of Gardner Peace really uh, surprised me. Well, let's hear a little bit of Garden of Peace by Lonnie Liston-Smith. And then why don't we hear a little bit of the Jay-Z classic that sampled it, Dead Presidents. So I read, and you can tell me if this is true or not true, but um, I read that you were voted both friendliest and best dressed in high school. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's in the yearbook. Uh, <laughs> should I, I should have found a note. I, I wish I had. I'll show it to you. But uh, yeah, that was, that was it. Tell me what you were wearing. Uh, well, you know, I was. You know, you went back then. I guess. You know, you you know you had you had the tie and shirt. And that's uh, that's a nice picture of us standing outside. A whole bunch of us standing outside, to talking to the principal, and uh, so. You know, I, I guess I was always in, into uh, to dressing, and now, I, you know, when I you know, just go on stage, you know, I, I wear all these beautiful colors in the shirts, and I call them my cosmic shirts. And so, I mean, because um, you know, back then in seventies, had the Fender Rose, and I had a a cover over the Fender Rose with. Uh, a lot of sequence and and on the front of it, so when the light hit it, it the the colors would just bounce out into the audience, and because you know color and sound, you know it it, it all goes together, and so uh, so Jesse, you know, I mean, I maybe maybe I was just too cosmic, you know, I was trying to do it all. Well. Lonnie Listen-Smith, I sure appreciate your time. Thank you very much for talking with me. All right. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Lonnie Listen-Smith. His latest album is Jazz is Dead 17. It's fantastic. Here's one more song from it called A New Spring.
That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, I bought one of those tumbling compost bins. Then I realized when it came, I'd have to put it together. I'd have to put the dang thing together. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Special thanks this week to Dina Weinstein for recording our conversation with Lonnie Listensmith out in Virginia, where he lives. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to them and Memphis Industries, their label, for sharing it with us. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Give us a follow. We will share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.